0: Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and the sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, dream about the future that you want to live in, and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Gabe Luna-Ostaseski, co-founder and CRO of Braintrust. At Braintrust, they're building the first user-controlled talent marketplace that connects organizations with highly skilled tech talent and leverages the Braintrust token to ensure high-quality output and incentive alignment. In doing so, they're helping bring about the future of work and create a marketplace where people all over the world can find exciting projects to work on, get paid for the value they create, and work however they see fit. Let's jump right in. Thank you again for for jumping on here. I'm excited to talk with you today about the future of work and all the incredible stuff you're doing at Brain Trust. Let's just to start with the basics. Can you tell me about the future you're building with Brain Trust? What's the vision?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of a couple of veins here, but like one observation is that the nature of both the work that needs to get done and where that work is happening is changing. People don't want to go and work in a a corporate office. They don't want to punch a clock. Obviously, that was accelerated dramatically by by this past year. So you've seen this big shift towards kind of freelance and more independent work. Now there's over 30 million people in the United States that want to be freelancers. And then on the other side, the nature of the work that needs to get done for employers is, is increasingly changing at a rapid rate and increasingly more and more technical. So it means that Oftentimes, the talent that they need to innovate and build new experiences maybe don't exist within the company, maybe don't even exist in the same state where those companies have offices. So essentially, what we've done is build a marketplace that connects highly skilled technical talent that are leaving Google, Facebook, Amazon with large Fortune 1000 companies like Nestle and Porsche, and even government organizations like NASA and essentially connects those two uh, to be able to actually build software. And that's not necessarily a new idea, right? Like there's been essentially labor marketplaces or people that have brought together, you know, talent and employers before. What is new is, is the, I'll say the ownership and the business model. So we are actually the first marketplace owned and operated by the talent. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, but but think of it like a global cooperative, or think about Uber that was owned or operated by the drivers, or Airbnb being owned or operated by the people you know renting out their houses. So that's that's kind of like the that's the new thing.
0: Yeah, t- tell me more about what that what that looks like. What does it mean for the network to be owned and operated by the talent?
1: You know, I've been building marketplaces and investing in marketplaces here in Silicon Valley for you know, fifteen years or so, and. These have become like dominant business models. If you look at Uber and Airbnb and, and any other marketplace in Silicon Valley, the, the problem is they, they essentially build value on the backs of users. So they essentially extract big fees, sometimes 30, 50% fees out of the transactions. So they're essentially extracting that value from the users. And then all of that builds the enterprise value, the value of that company. And that goes to a very, very small number of people uh, who are arguably already rich here in Silicon Valley. And so the idea around brain trust and the idea of this, what we call the user owned economy is essentially distributing, you know, ownership and control and voting to all of the users so that it's decentralized versus all of the value and ownership and control concentrating with just a few people. So currently we have contributors and, and people that are uh, in the network that are over a hundred countries and you just, that's a, that's a new thing.
0: I want to I want to kind of dwell on how this is shaping the future of work. So right now, people are they're coming out of their jobs from kind of big tech companies or software companies in general, and then you're connecting them with the Fortune 1000s. How does this kind of grow and evolve over the the coming decades?
1: Yeah, so I think that the if I look at the future of work, there's kind of two lenses to apply to it. So one one lens would be like you know when you look at big enterprises or or companies. So like how what's the future of work for them? And there's kind of I would say two big things that are impacting them. One is that all companies are now software companies, like all companies are forced to act and operate like tech companies, right? So whether you're a, you know, Stanley, Black and Decker or Nestle, now you have to build software. So you're not in the business of selling water. You're in the business of like, you know, building online acquisition channels or, or paths to customers. That's one new thing, which is that all these companies are, are kind of like facing digital transformation, digital disruption. And in many cases, the people in, the, in those companies don't necessarily have those skill sets. That's kind of like one, one thing that really affects them. The, the second is what we call kind of the unbundling of corporate America, which means that when you think about the, the way in which these companies have been run in the past and you think about what's happening now, they're traditional like big kind of lumbering giants and hierarchies. And what's happening is that people are wanting to kind of peel off from these large enterprises and essentially become their own kind of micro entrepreneurs, whether they're a software developer or writer or marketer. These people are wanting to operate independently. And so that's causing some real challenges, even for big companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon. And if they can't retain that highly skilled tech talent, like how's a company in the Midwest going to do that? So those are big challenges that they're facing is the increased pressure of needing highly skilled technical talent and then the pressure of those people not wanting to have to you know work in it in a traditional corporation anymore.
0: What does the future of work look like for for the individual operating that world? Yeah, so I think there's a
1: couple of new things uh one, you now have like a global demand for those skills, right. Uh, the second thing is you now have, a, will say, a global market and global distribution platform, i.e. the internet, to be able to sell your wares or your skills on a global scale. And so what, what that means, I think, if we project it out a little bit more, is the potential for like global market rates for talent. So whether you're living in Pakistan or, or Mountain View, there, there should be some global market rates based on skill set versus geography. And I actually think that that's a huge bright spot in all of this is that if you can take away this kind of global rate arbitrage that's been going on and you create essentially a market for skills um, and have global market rates, what it does is that I think it distributes opportunity more equitably around the world, right? So like we have this belief that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And so if there's a global market with global market rates, it enables talent from all over the world to be able to earn more and in turn, like push more money into their communities. So that part kind of gives me promise for the future.
0: It seems like the, the gap though, to get there is in, in the education upscaling of, of people all over the world. How are you viewing that one? And then two, within this project-based work model seems like one of the things that's lacking is this ability to, to upskill. One of the things you get from like a traditional job is you get the security, you get the community, but you also get the the training and the support. So it's like, one, how do we get everyone around the world like upskilled, but then two, how do we think about this moving forward if a lot of work is gonna be project-based and decentralized?
1: Yeah, totally. So I think one, one of the things in this trade-off, right? Like when you leave a traditional corporation, uh, I'm just gonna use the example here in America is like you are taking some risk, right? You're taking risk, of course, income risk, you're taking kind of a benefits risk uh, because there's not like portable benefits and things like that for for independent workers here in the U.S. And the other risk that you're taking is this kind of like infrastructure to support kind of growth and learning and, and development. So you're now shouldering all of that risk yourself as an individual, essentially as a, as an entrepreneur. And there's a bunch of challenges with that. Uh, but one of them is that there's not really kind of the infrastructure or a, a best in class kind of program or structure to follow. Everyone's just basically left to fend for themselves with all of those things, left to fend for themselves and finding benefits and healthcare, finding customers and also like continuing to learn and and grow. And so our belief is that that education, that upskilling needs to be tied to the market. Um, It needs to be tied to the network. Otherwise, how do you know whether that skill that you're taking or or that you're upskilling is actually driving, let's say, more customers, more revenue to you as, as a freelancer? So that's, that's what we have started building at Braintrust is, this is still early days, but launching the Braintrust Academy. What we're trying to do is connect the demand of all of these different skills and all the kind of the attributes and the taxonomy of all of those skills with the rates and then with a third part, which is the education. So the idea is that rather than just taking classes for classes sake, you're taking classes because you know that there's increased demand for those skills and you can essentially like increase your earnings. Um, and, and right now, those things have been kind of like even in, in traditional education system in the US, like you have what you're learning, which is there's a big disconnect between what you need to know to actually earn in the market.
0: Yeah. So do you see this evolving in a way where, where instead of pursuing traditional modes of higher education, people would go to something like the Brain Trust Academy to learn the skills they need to immediately be valuable or to immediately have a job in the in the market?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we have to see some changes through the traditional education system in the US, like,
0: you know, having people
1: go to school and be saddled with a lifetime full of debt, in many cases, to learn skills that don't help them earn an income. I think we have to really rethink those programs and that, you know, the traditional higher education system isn't for everyone. You know, those kind of specialized programs might be fit for certain kind of trades or or certain kind of job paths, but it's certainly not right for everyone. It wasn't right for me, and so I think that th- th- we will see the emergence of a bunch of new kind of ways for people to learn, whether it be micro learning or you know trade academies, things like that, to kind of fill the gap.
0: Yeah, and then and then the goal of Brain Trust is to then take those people who who do have these skills and then connect them with with jobs. Again, back to the the primary reasons people choose like normal traditional jobs. At least before before COVID, they didn't have the ability to to work remotely. They didn't have quite the fle- they didn't have the flexibility but one of the one of the things that personally affected me was this sense of community right uh, peter Thiel in in his famous zero to one talks about like the the transactional nature of being a consultant somewhere and when you're building a team, you want to really get people rallied around the mission. but it seems like one of the problems with this sort of project based work is people just checking in and out and there's not a lot of camaraderie or team building that gets to take place. How do you see that playing out this sort of model
1: what well, our observation from talking to our you know we have a 40,000 person talent community is that people want to do the work that they love and they want to do it on their own terms and in many cases they actually want the novelty of working on really cool projects but for multiple companies and so that, that's like where the desire is what we've found internally is is that the talent on brain trust have actually we you know, we have a really strong community where people actually host training sessions for each other people host workshops, so they're getting some of that community from being a part of brain trust versus getting it through traditional W-2 employment. So I think, you know, this is one of those things that's kind of like the, the trade, right? When you make that trade and you get out of a traditional W-2 employment and you move towards this, this is one of the trade-offs, but this is a really solvable problem, right? Like, I don't think that you have to take a nine to five job in order to be a part of a community. I'm, I'm a part of a lot of communities that aren't related to the work that I do.
0: Yeah. One, one of the things that excites me the most about what, what y'all are doing is is this possible future where if I'm an expert in growth, my friend is an expert in engineering and product development, and someone else is in design. In a way, I, I see this possibly playing out where where the three of us could go bid on projects together or work on projects together. So we, we form these little like teams. Is that in line with how y'all are thinking about this?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's
0: already happening. It
1: happens every single day on the platform. One of the challenges... If you're operating independently, there's a limit to this this kind of the size and scope of projects that you're going to get because oftentimes they're multidisciplinary. When you have essentially like a okay like a little studio or a little agency, it enables you to be able to tackle like larger, more complex projects that are multidisciplinary. And then also like I'll say band together for a project and then disband and operate independently and then reform as as kind of a you know, to tactical projects in the future. So, I mean, it happens every single day on the platform right now.
0: Is it safe to assume that you're familiar with like the Hollywood model of work? Yeah. Can you, for the listener, can you explain what that is and kind of how you see that translating from, you know, how they do it in Hollywood to eventually what what we're going to be doing?
1: Yeah. So I I think the way that I describe it is imagine the Hollywood model being essentially a a bunch of independent nodes.
0: And those nodes
1: essentially can free form as independents and they can also form together as entities to, to basically tackle a project and then disband some of the advantages of that is it's it's highly flexible it's also very resilient and it's very adaptable so you can kind of swap in swap out you can you can grow you can construct depending on the nature of the work that needs to be done for that period of time and so it's been very successful for making movies and I think more and more if you can use software to drive the formation and and consolidation when necessary and enable people to kind of break apart like that. It's kind of been one or the other in the past. It's like either you do that or you have this kind of like big lumbering giant model of a hierarchy that's really inflexible and slow to move. So I think we're seeing the emergence of, I'll say like the shift from hierarchies to networks.
0: Oh, okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so this model of like the, I'll say the rise of the, the corporation has happened over this last, I don't know, couple hundred years. But traditionally, if you go way back in the rewind machine, like everyone was an independent entrepreneur. And then the the rise of the firm was because of the, the costs of transacting as an individual were too high. We were just talking about that, right? Those are like the costs of transacting. I'll say the legal, they, you know, having your own benefits, like there's a whole bunch of different costs, both like hard costs and soft costs. To operating independently. And so this gave way to the kind of the rise of the firm, which is essentially bundle the transaction costs under a firm and lower the individual transaction costs and operate as a firm versus operate as independence. And that model has worked for a very, very long time. But now the transaction costs have actually come down for a bunch of different reasons, right? You now, the main reason is you now have software that can do a lot of the things that traditionally people used to do, whether that be, you know, purchasing, is you have software in the internet right you have communication platforms and 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 software that helps to drive processes and so what's happening what i see happening is you still have this kind of like old outdated model but you have the ability to operate in a, in a much more independent flexible autonomous way and the transaction costs of doing so have come down dramatically and so i i think that you're just starting to see companies see the benefits of having this kind of like highly flexible and autonomous workforce to kind of come together to, to tackle projects while not having you know, the traditional hierarchy of costs and the slow kind of lumbering giant uh, way of operating. I, again, I'm happy to double click into any of that stuff. Where's where there still friction for companies that are kind of slowly moving to adopt this model? Yeah, so I think the biggest friction is this kind of anachronistic thinking around butts and seats. And, you know, we experienced that, like, I'll say late 2019, when we were when we were originally kind of starting to bring on some enterprises, they all got it conceptually, like, hey, you know, I'm in the Midwest, I need to hire data scientists and UI people, like, the uh, I'm having trouble doing that. Like, what I'm doing isn't working. Those people are not moving from Mountain View to Omaha. Um, and so they, they kind of got it conceptually, but there was still this kind of anachronistic thinking of like, okay, great, Braindress, can you place can you get people to move from Mountain View uh, or can you find me great data scientists that are Google level in Omaha? And it's like no. So they, so they were dipping their toes in the water, right? Like they, they would put a couple roles onto the platform. And then frankly, the COVID pandemic when all of these companies couldn't even go to their offices, it removed yeah. the biggest friction point which was essentially this old way of thinking, and we got a company that was dipping their toes in the water like 10x the amount of stuff that they were putting on the platform. And so I, I think that the biggest friction point is kind of the old way of operating. And that's both like the thinking and it's also the systems, right? Like the the systems for these companies oftentimes are baked either in like pure W-2 or like working with a big firm like an Accenture or something like that. And there's not a whole lot in the middle that it allows them to work with like kind of flexible talent pools or individual contractors. Because they have such like kind of onerous procurement and legal processes that no individual contractor could get through that. So that's kind of what we do at BrainTrust is essentially we, we get through all of the procurement and sign the MSAs and, and get all of those agreements in place. And that way, a big corporation can contract directly with the independents all over the world, but essentially have one place that they contract and do all the payments, and everything through. So it enables them to tap into a global talent pool without having to like hire each person individually.
0: What skills are people going to need in order to thrive in this future, in addition to software development or? You're talking about
1: like soft skills, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my observation is I would say resilience and curiosity are the two that really strike the chord for me, which is the rate of change is only going to pick up. And the skills that people are going to school for right now are going to be like obsolete over the next few years, even writing software. Like likely a lot of those skills are going to be done by robots and algorithms in the future. And so what that means is that people are going to have to constantly be changing and adapting in both what they do for work or how they work. And so I think resilience is incredibly important in being able to do that effectively and not be, yeah, not get down every time that something changes. The, the second is curiosity. Humans, that's what makes us human um, in addition to other things. But if we can follow that curiosity and, and be continually interested in learning new things, what is cool about that is now, again, you have a, you have a global distribution platform for the things that you think are cool. <laughs> like, whether that be, you know, Cameron, like you doing this, like building this podcast or, or somebody else getting really passionate about, you know, crocheted hand mittens. That's probably not the best example. But the idea is if you are curious about something and you really go deep and learning about that thing. Now you actually have a global market for other people that like the same things that you do um, or that need the things on the other side of that transaction.
0: Yeah, it, it is like a testament to the power of the internet, right? We're moving this world where Everyone can be an individual creator. They can run. They can be their own entrepreneur. They can pick and choose what they want to do. I think those of us who are in the Silicon Valley bubble, like we see it pretty clearly. I think it's still starting to kind of break its way out to the, to the rest of the world. What would you say people like the, some of the biggest misconceptions are about this mode of operating or this future that we may understand intuitively working in the the tech industry, but that most of the people would, would not.
1: I think that there's this, there's a big assumption, which is that people want a job. Like it's still this, it's this kind of still old way of thinking, which is that people want and they want a job and they want like a W2 job that is with one company essentially doing the same thing over and over and over. A lot of companies are set up that way, right? Like they're trying to recruit and hire people that are looking for that job. And and in the process, they miss the other like 70% of people that might have the skills to do the job, but are not looking for a job, right? And so I think that it's a misconception there in terms of the way in which a lot of companies are recruiting and hiring right now is a flawed assumption that people are looking for a full time job.
0: And I think that that's really started to change. Yeah, I would agree with that. I want to I want to jump back to the the nodes and the network piece. It seems like in order for that that to to work, there needs to be trust. There needs to be some sort of reputation, and there needs to be some sort of kind of incentive alignment. Can you talk me through those components? And then I think that's a good segue into why y'all decided to build on the blockchain, Ethereum.
1: So yes, if you're, if you're transacting with people in, in a global network, like trust is paramount to that, right? Um, whether you're renting someone's house or getting into someone's car or having somebody design a website for you or, or build a piece of software. So trust is kind of at the core of that. And then if you peel back the layers of, of trust and like, okay, what are the components of it? Well, you have like work history, right? You have kind of ratings and reviews. Um, and then I would say you have to have some sort of escrow payments, trust, and then you have to have some sort of, kind of like, I'll say like backup plan insurance. And so that's, that's kind of how we approach this is, is essentially enable people to create their federated work history on brain trust, all the work that they've done, where they've worked and, and individual projects that they've worked on. We put it all out in the open. Um, so totally transparent work history and, uh, and projects, et cetera. The second part is, is the ratings and reviews, right? Like actually trusted ratings and reviews of work that people have, have transacted with them. The next part is is we handle kind of all the escrow and global payments and compliance and all that's done by the Brain Trust software. And then I would say the the last part is is kind of the insurance. So we actually offer a, a guarantee on the match um, where companies actually don't pay if they're not happy after two weeks. So it's it's like a, a guarantee that, that that match is effective and that are essentially introducing a trust mechanism. Those things, you could, I'll say like, you could do them in a, I'll say like a web to marketplace way, right? Like Airbnb does those kind of same things. So there's nothing, that's not the reason that you would use like blockchain. The reason that we use blockchain technology is first, if you want to have a global network of people that are essentially like owned, operated and controlled, meaning people have governance and voting rights. You can't do that with a Delaware C corporation. You can do that with a blockchain token, um, and you can have people. Currently, we have people over a hundred countries. So that that's one component. If, if you want to have in, in Braintrust, the B trust token is a sole unit of ownership and voting control in Braintrust, and you can send a token around the world as easy as sending an email. That would be logistically impossible if you were doing that with. Uh, you know, a a Delaware C corporation. So that's one of the main reasons is that it gives you an ability to have a ton of flexibility in how you do governance and having essentially a, rather than a a voting right or a share of stock or something representing ownership in in a company, you would have a token that essentially represents your governance rights and voting rights in, in that system. And we have a one token, one vote system.
0: So why does that matter? Yeah. That people can can vote or have this governance mechanism.
1: Yeah. So I think it's actually it's best to describe it as as an example. So like do you remember when DoorDash came out a few years ago and they enabled you as a feature in the app to actually be able to tip your dasher? Then it came out that the DoorDash actually just kept all the tips and they booked it as revenue. They essentially stole all of those tips from all of the dashers. That would be logistically impossible in the brain trust network because all of the, essentially the way in which the, the network is operated is all in a smart contract. So if, the, if you wanted to change the rules, it would actually have to be a vote and it's a one token, one vote system. So the community would have to vote. If you use that DoorDash example, all the dashers would have to vote to have DoorDash keep all their tips. Like, do you think that that would happen? Like, no, there's no chance. If you run your business on these platforms, governance really matters. The fees really matter. The roadmap really matters, and that's why we have such a, such an incredible community. Is that these are people that are running their businesses on this platform, and they also have a voice, and that voice really matters when it comes to fee structure and roadmap and and you know product features, things like that.
0: Yeah. So it's ultimately like a decentralized network. Is Brain Trust effectively going to be like at some point like a an enterprise customer to this this network? Right. Is there a point where you guys abstract out and you are just running projects on behalf of the network?
1: Yeah, so so Brain Trust will will end up being a, a foundation, much like the Ethereum Foundation, it essentially becomes a public good. So it's essentially that foundation is a non profit entity. It's a public good. There will be many for profit entities on the network, right? Agencies, uh, you know, for pro- other for profit entities that are essentially either bringing more customers or bringing more talent to the network, um, and running their businesses on the, on the protocol and the software that we've built. So we're here to enable for-profit entities to run on our run on the software that we've built, but we will not be a for-profit entity.
0: Is there anything that, that actually we didn't touch on, on the the blockchain model or the kind of actual operation of Brain Trust?
1: So you can't just buy the VTrust Trust token; um, you have to earn it. Um, you have to earn it doing things that are help accretive to the network growth. So in our in our network, it's it's bringing on more clients, right, uh, that want to hire. Uh, or bringing up more talent that wants to get jobs or get hired. And so essentially people can earn B-Trust by inviting more talent, right? Uh, or inviting more clients. And that's, that's one incredible way. The second thing that they can do is, of course, like helping to spread the word about brain trust. So like people on our network and waitlist actually earn B-Trust by helping to share, you know, share about the programs and, and share about the work that we're doing. Um, then the question is like, how do you spend it, right? So you have B-Trust, like how do you spend it? Well, One, you can use it to vote on features and and roadmap, fee structures, things like that. That will go live kind of mid next year. The second thing is we're going to implement this thing called bid staking. The idea behind that is to to our point earlier around like increasing trust in these marketplaces, it will enable people to actually stake the trust along with their bid for bid or proposal for that job. And if they don't complete according to it, they can essentially lose that stake. The idea behind that is to essentially increase trust I Have another mechanism that increases trust in this global marketplace. And, and they can also spend it on things like the Brain Trust Academy, right? Upskilling, taking more classes, learning.
0: Why did you choose to do this? Why does this building this out excite you? Yeah, so
1: what excited me was the idea of essentially building a, a brand new business model in a category that was as important as future work. To, to build a business model that more equitably distributes opportunity, right, jobs and opportunity around the world, and also that more equally distributes value around the world. So like traditionally, like an Upwork or something like that, they take sometimes up to 35% of what the talent makes. We take 0%. So what that means is that the talent, when they come to Brain Trust, they they essentially get a 30% raise. And in addition to that, they, you know, they get to have a voice in in the brain trust network. And I I have this fundamental belief, which is that the next generation of marketplaces across a lot of different categories from ride sharing to food delivery to you know to, to distributed work will be owned and operated by the users. And because of that, these networks will grow faster and become more valuable than traditional Web2 marketplaces. That's the fundamental belief. And so that gets me really excited is that I think it's historic. And I think it's a shift from the way in which these kind of like extractionary business models have been done and pushing that value to the people and enabling the people to own and control the networks. And I, I think that that's a, I would be very proud to have that shift happen in my lifetime and have some small impact on that.
0: Yeah. So outside of the the future of work component for, for how marketplaces evolve, what are some of the other facets that, that are really interesting to you, or that you think about that you would like perhaps to see other entrepreneurs go build?
1: Yeah. So for this model, we, we you know we we settled on this category um, for a whole host of reasons. We published a Medium post on it. I think this will happen in a bunch of other categories um, over the course of the next five years. Once somebody, once that thesis of these things grow faster and become more valuable. It's this new business model. It'd be like a shift of when they, when software used to be sold on premise, and then this guy came along and was like, "Hey, how about you just rent it by the month, and you don't have to have anything in your office?" And now that company, Salesforce, and now there's you know hundreds of thousands of other multi-billion-dollar software SaaS companies. But I think that this has that kind of potential. And so I think it will you will both see existing categories, right? Let's say ride sharing or or food delivery, things that are kind of like known web two marketplace opportunities from us. I think there's there will be entrepreneurs that are gonna go and attack those categories. And then there's gonna be a whole bunch of categories that have never existed. From being in Silicon Valley, one of the things I've seen is that the new things kind of don't look like the old things. So there might be entirely new categories that we don't even think of or we don't even see right now that will be user owned, user operated networks in categories that just we can't see because they haven't happened
0: yet. Can I ask you to speculate on? I know we haven't seen those and we may not imagine what those might be, but are there any that you're thinking about? You're like, hmm, we don't have X today, but I see that like X working really well on this sort of Web 3.0 decentralized model.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think personal data would be interesting. Um, kind of the intersection of both, like privacy, and second, being able to kind of monetize your own data. There's, I'm sure, teams. You know, there's many teams working on this, but I think that that's really interesting, given how much data we're actually producing and how much value companies are building on the backs of our data. Um, so I think that's an int- certainly an interesting category. Um, uh, I- I'm really interested, also, I think in in skills and knowledge marketplaces, because I think that there's interesting opportunity there to our earlier point around having a global market for your skills and, and talent. Right now, you know, people are monetizing maybe through some kind of learning platforms, but but those platforms are still taking 30, 40%. So and imagine those platforms owned and operated by the users and people being able to create educational content. And have a global market to sell it, and essentially earning substantially more than they are right now with those big rigs in place.
0: Yeah, it's it's cool to almost think about the evolution of you know someone decides, hey, I'm really interested in field X, and then they can go find someone who's doing some sort of income share agreement to train them and get them upskilled, and then they can go to Brain Trust and find jobs that are projects that are related to that thing, and then they can go build out a team or go build out an agency or go pick up projects as they see fit, operate on their own their own timeline. How how would someone get started with Braintrust, or perhaps like if they're with COVID, they are now working remotely, and they're like, hmm, kind of want to do something else. Where would you recommend that they they get started in pursuing this sort of kind of independent solo entrepreneur kind of lifestyle, and and how does Braintrust fit into that?
1: Yeah, so they can sign up at the wait list, which is usebraintrust.com.
0: and then probably same with with companies that are you know looking to looking to hire. Right. Same. Good.
1: Exactly. Use Braintrust.com. Um, they can see, of course, a bunch of the big companies that we work with, ranging from NASA to Nike and Nestle and Porsche and a lot of companies, obviously, in between.
0: Last thing for you, outside of kind of the networks and and the work you're doing at Braintrust, what excites you the most about the future?
1: I mean, I'm excited that we have our first female vice president. Um, as a as a father of of a young girl growing up. Like, I think that things like this create milestones that pave a path for other young women that are growing up and taking on more positions of power within the global economy. So that that is obviously very recent, but it's something that, it gives me a lot of hope and promise for the future, is more women and also more underrepresented communities taking on more positions of power uh, around the world. And I think that will be very positive for us in the long term.
0: Again, thank you for for taking the time to jump on here. I'm very, very grateful. If you want to learn more about BrainTrust or get started as either an entrepreneur or an enterprise, head on over to usebraintrust.com. And then if you want to follow along Gabe's journey, you can find him on Twitter at Gabe Luneo. G-A-B-E-L-U-N-A-O. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. Lastly, if you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or from certain people or just want to get involved in helping build the future shoot us over an email at hello at build or follow me Cameron on twitter at cam we and we'll see what we can make happen that's it from us until next time go build